Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Dr. Celine Van Gulder, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. Her research focuses on the reliability of eyewitness memory in children and adults, both for one-off and repeated events. Celine has expertise in how interviewing techniques in forensic settings, such as those used by police, lawyers, and judges, can affect memory accuracy. She has used her research and knowledge to give lectures to the New South Wales Police Force Child Abuse Training Programs, as well as advising judges and lawyers on issues relating to eyewitness memory. Celine is also the founder and director of Not Guilty, the Sydney Exoneration Project, which assesses cases of potential wrongful convictions. While applying her work in a legal context, Celine's expertise lies within psychology as she tries to promote how research can be used to support vulnerable people, both children and adults, who go through the legal system. It was an honour to have Celine speak with me today and also interesting to consider how vulnerable people are treated in the legal system plus explore the general differences between adversarial and inquisitory models in law. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Celine, a big thank you for coming on to the program today. Thank you for having me. Really excited today with uh, our topic being around you know, the, the the space of court and and how you know children in particular are you know uh, uh, understood as witnesses, but also you know how that might also be different to adults um, and and you know looking forward to finding out all about it. And I know that you've written a book of, of, of late as well in in this space, so you've got plenty plenty to say. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I think it's important as it's often misunderstood how accurate children can be and how reliable they can be. It's it's really interesting because in many ways children are so innocent and 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 so we do kind of think about them as being quite accurate in in being able to provide at least some information that we do take what they say as as you know still being some type of information and and I know they're still used um in, in in many ways, whether it's, you know, during court or even before someone goes to court, you know, in family matters and the like. Um, but you know, it'll be interesting to find out more about how does this actual space, you know, play out and what have your findings been and, you know, and what are the considerations you know when when thinking about children as as, as witnesses and you know their, their capacity to uh, you know, express information you know how they um, can recall info how they even encode 
info and how reliable this 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 space is because I know that at least my understanding and please correct me uh, if I'm wrong here that that there's obviously some great challenges with even adults about about being witnesses let alone for for, for children so maybe you can you know begin begin that space um, for me and help me out a little <laughs> no absolutely so in general there's like a big big background towards this so if we look at the early 1900s and up to the 1970s 1980s children are often left out of any judicial process even if they had been victimized themselves because they were considered to be incapable of providing accurate information and then, of course, a lot of research came into play. Psychologists were very interested in, well, what are the abilities of children? And from the 1980s to, uh, towards 1990s, you see that the position of children within legal procedures changed. And all of a sudden, they were allowed into courts to provide a testimony of what happens. Um, however, due to quite some just issues that happened with how children were treated and specifically how children were interviewed, all of a sudden there was a lot of emphasis about like our children often get it wrong and they're easily manipulated. They uh, can come to believe stories that never happened to them. They can be coached into providing certain statements and people became very wary of uh, children providing testimonies again, again, reinforced a lot of research that then has shown that children can be very accurate and very reliable witnesses, as long as they're asked the right questions, if their memory is treated the right way. And I think a common misconception, because of course, children might be a little bit more vulnerable because their brains are still developing. And I'm talking here about preschool children, primary school children, but even up into adolescence. Um, and we see that how their memory works is slightly different than adults, but technically they're not that different towards adults because as you already alluded to, adults also can have a lot of issues in trying to recount what happened to them, especially if it was unexpected or one-off. So it all starts with the idea about how a memory works. Often the general population thinks a memory works a little bit like an old school video recorder or like the video function on your phone where once you're observing something or something is happening to you, then it's like clicking that record button and everything that you witness and all the details just get stored in your brain. Um, and then once you want to recall that information at a later point, it works a little bit like Netflix, where you select the season, you fast forward to like you select the episode that you want to recall, you fast forward to the specific scene, you pause the screen, and in your brain, you can describe every single detail what you see on the screen. Now, unfortunately, your memory doesn't work like that. So our memory is reconstructive. And this means that every time that we recall a specific event, there's different factors that will impact what we recall and how we recall it. And this can be, for example, who we're talking to, because if you're talking to your friends, you're going to recall a specific party that you went to completely different than if you're talking to your parents or if you're talking to an authority figure, for example, um, or to your kids. If you're very happy when you're trying to recall a memory, your memory will also be more happy than if you're very sad at the time. So these are factors that are already just influencing our memory overall. 
But then there's also other factors, of course, that will influence the different stages. So you already were talking about encoding. So this is when we're actually experiencing events and we take all the details, we take all the information and we encode that into our brain to be stored for later retrieval. We see that there's obvious factors and less obvious factors that will affect what we encode. So if we're very close to an event, we will see a lot more details than if we're very far away when we witness it. If it's very dark when we're witnessing it, you can't see as much as, as if it's very bright. But there's also less obvious factors. So for example, age, we know that very young children will encode information differently than adults. And also older adults will encode it differently. And that is because we have different pre-existing knowledge um, that will enable us to understand what's going on and help us actually, ah, like, I recognize what is going on. I understand what this is and help us encode the information. Young children don't have all these experiences yet. And for that reason, might not encode all the details. Um, then if we look at storage as well, it's like how you then have that information, you how you, you provide it usually with a specific tag so that if you later want to recall it, you just search for that tag, that specific cue. Um, if we're watching a car crash, we tag all those details as car crash in our memory. And how we tag it and the type of cues that we attach to it and the network that we develop within our brain during storage will determine what we'll retrieve later. And then retrieval, which is that third stage of memory, is when we dig into it and try to get it out. And this is where we actually have the most influence as external people on how children, how adults will remember, because the questions that we ask, suggestions that we provide during those questions will determine how people remember specific details. Um, in general, our memory decays very rapidly. And so specifically, if there's a one-off event, then um, we see that we forget the majority of the details within the first few hours after experiencing it. And then it plateaus out about around 30% of the details we'll remember. It's not arbitrary what we forget. It's usually the central detail. So that that grabbed our attention or what's potentially caused us stress. That's what we focus on. That's what you'll remember the longest and for a long period of time. And it's more those peripheral details, which can be important to a police investigation, but are not important to your experience that you'll start to forget more often. Now, this happens to everyone, children, adults, older adults. But what we see is that children have a little bit um so first of all with encoding it's a little bit more difficult because they don't know what to pay attention to they don't have pre-existing knowledge to actually for it to make sense to then store it in a coherent way and we also see that they struggle a little bit more with retrieval and we need to help them systematically search their memory and actually retrieve the information because it's just something that you learn over time um, how to actually effectively use your memory, cue yourself, uh, retrieve information. So this works the same for everyone. Everyone has the same issues, but children are just at a little bit more disadvantaged because they're still developing certain skills. It it makes sense uh, with the theory in mind that if, if, if young people are not sure what to encode because they don't have pre-existing patterns, they're just trying to encode the whole of it and we know that that exhausts the memory capacity. And so, you know, a lot of things can be missed, but it's trying to put potentially a, a relatively high priority on everything 
um, not knowing, actually trying to sift out what are the patterns in life. And and until those patterns are established, uh, there's obviously a lot of uh, challenge in that encoding and therefore, you know, also in challenging actually storing and and, and keeping all of the data um, when in actual fact you don't need all of that and it's very high cost to try and, you know, store all of it. Uh, and hence where the retrieval then becomes quite difficult. They need lots of prompts or, or assistance to say, you know, can you recall other things or, you know, what what else was there at the time that they can go, oh, I didn't even think about that, but can I now look yeah. back and try and see what was there, you know. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and at the same time, it's also like almost that can happen and also the reverse where for them they can focus on something that is that feels that is familiar to them or that they are very interested in but that we wouldn't even have paid attention to. And so they have very good memory of the specific, oh, but there was like a fire truck and you're like, but at the same time, someone got murdered over there. Why are you looking at the fire truck? But that is like relevant to them. So they also pay attention to different details that they will focus on and remember because they are relevant to them and it makes sense to them or they are experiencing. And this is often, unfortunately, due to the nature of the crimes that children are most exposed to, which are usually abuse and sexual abuse type in nature, is that they don't quite understand what is happening to them. And if you don't understand what is happening to you or what a specific action is or what something entails, then how are you going to remember it? It's like coming across like a weird, awkward thing for the first time, an object, and you're just like later on have to describe what it is. Like unless you know what the function is or the name or anything like that, it's difficult to remember it or describe it even later on. And often with very young kids, it's the very first time that they experience certain things and they might not have the words or the understanding to describe what was actually happening to them. So how are you going to store that information? Let, let alone then actually be asked about what was the room like and where was the door situated and so on yeah. and so forth. All the other peripheral detail at that point, you know, it, it all actually becomes quite difficult. Yes. And yeah. other than those things that grab their attention specifically that, that yeah. actually become points of interest to yes. them in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like it's even difficult for adults. So let alone for children, because we know that adults struggle as well within these circumstances. There's so much research that shows how easily memories can be changed in adults. Um, and we always blame the children and say like, oh, but they're very unreliable. And I'm like, it's everyone. And actually the duty is with the person interviewing the child because they can really, or talking to the child, they can really determine how accurate and how reliable it is because the information is there. We just need to be a, use proper techniques to get that information out. I'm, I might be jumping the gun and I, <laughs> I, I, I probably am, but my mind wants to go there. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's research that, looks at how memory changes when it's in a courtroom versus how memory is outside of a courtroom. And I, I ask this question because I've observed in a courtroom uh, yeah, two police officers being asked the same, uh, uh, being asked about the same um, event. Yep. And there were even, there were, there were questions that were asked, like, for example, the sirens, Sorry, the, the the lights. How were they situated on the vehicle? Um, and 
you know, the, the tactic from the barrister was really to try and discredit the the witness. Um, but interestingly, it seemed to me like the police officers probably wouldn't recall that because it's such a peripheral, um, you know, uh, item, you know, a, a memory to, to even encode. You know, why would a police officer even care about whether it was a light that you pop on the top of your, um, you know, cabin car, you know, or, or whether it's, you know, a big long one or whatever it might be. But it almost felt like the police officers say, tried to save face by giving an answer rather than saying, I don't recall. Um, uh, and it almost looks like, you know, that would come under the, you know, position of that that that's a false memory because one of them had to have had a false memory if if they both had different responses, you know, and therefore puts into question you know, the their credibility. Um, but I wonder if the, if there is research that looks at witnesses actually saying things because it's so daunting in 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 a courtroom rather than saying, look, I don't recall because that can seem that can yeah. look a little bit foolish or it can look like you know maybe you're not trying to be a good witness or participate you it's always like you're compelled to say something you know that's what it looked like for, for these police officers so maybe i'm jumping the gun but that's the question that's come up for me yeah that's absolutely the case so the majority of that research is focusing on leading questions and if people are willing to say i don't know there's actually a lot of research with children so if we look at the majority of protocols that are set up to interview children and there's different protocols around the world but technically they follow quite a similar structure where it's very important to set ground rules at the start of the interview so you build report and then you set the ground rules. And some of the ground rules is uh, are that if you don't know the answer, please don't guess, but just say don't know exactly for that reason. Um, is this when speaking to children? This is like when speaking to children. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what you see now is that there is an emphasis as well on vulnerable adults and they use the same type of interviewing structure more and more as well because they've recognized vulnerability in adults. Um, then where they they say things like I wasn't there, so I do not know the answer. So if like if I'm saying something wrong or if I repeat the question, it's not because I think you are wrong, but it is because I just want to double check or that I've I've understood it right. And you really put the power with the child and really make clear that please feel free to say if you don't understand something, if I need to rephrase a sentence, of course, like in more child friendly language. Um, and please say, I don't know, because there's a lot of research that shows that children, when they have an unanswerable question, they will provide you with an answer. It's yeah. <laughs> it's super cute. And if you YouTube it, you'll find like a lot of videos and they ask children questions like, oh, what is um, what is bigger, milk or water? And what you see is that children will try to answer that question. And they have like four-year-olds and seven-year-olds. And then they both will try to answer that question. And especially if you keep on repeating the question. And the older they are, they actually will come up with justifications. So they will say like, oh, well, milk is bigger because water is see-through. So, um, and milk is like wide and you can't see through it. So for that reason, it's bigger. Or they say, what is heavier, red or yellow? Um, and 
children are very inclined to provide you with an answer. Now, of course, that is a cute demonstration about how they'll come up with an answer. But then if within an interview context, what this means is if there's an answer that they don't know, of, if there's a question they don't know the answer to, rather than saying, I don't know, they're more inclined to just come up with something. And the older the children are, and this is like these are primary school children, um, they are more likely to justify it. And as an interviewer, at that point, it becomes unclear, like, do they actually know this? And especially when there's a justification, then it's like, well, but they even provided a justification. And for that reason, it's so important that you um, that you set those ground rules at the start. Now, when it comes to adults, it's assumed like, well, adults wouldn't go along with it. But of course, adults are going to be intimidated as well, especially in the court context, um, where they it's all set up to trick them into answering and defense is there to actually create reasonable doubts that their that their defendant that their client is not guilty and they will need to well they have to just create reasonable doubts towards the story of the prosecution but even adults are very easily tricked into trying to answer and you see it especially with this the research on how people respond to its questions of barristers and on the cross-examination shows that they are very easily go along with the questions and especially if they are suggestive or leading questions as well and it's difficult to protect yourself there are some witness preparation courses but that is depending on what country that you're in and what type of legal system that you're in that isn't always allowed but it is really tricky to stand because I think the main problem both with children and with adults is that especially if you're a witness like you're there and you want to help you want to get the truth out so if they ask you a question yeah I'll You'll, you'll give it your best guess because you don't quite know. And that can actually go against you because it can undermine your credibility if you're proven wrong within that answer. And we are all taught that we should like, like be compliant with authority figures. You never talk like, oh, go against what the police says or go against what the judge says. It's always like respect those people, go along. So it's not in our nature to easily say that. And also, I don't know, can be, but is not an easy option like not a lot of people want to acknowledge that they don't know mm. so it can be such an ingrained type thing that you don't want to acknowledge that you don't know an answer that both you want to help and at the same time it's that oh, I don't want to give in to saying I don't know that you go along with what is said or you provide a guess and I imagine that once once we form or, or express an opinion like you know milk is bigger than water that leads to the next thing you know if someone repeatedly and that was that aspect that you said if, if if a child is asked repeatedly it almost insinuates there is a correct answer and so the child is likely to guess and it's reasonable to guess that milk is the heavier one on average more of the time because it it, it looks like it's solid rather than clear yeah. um you know that that's a reasonable way to think as a, as a young person. If someone's being insistent on tell me the answer, um, you're then more likely to go and say, "Well, you know, which one's the heavier one?" Yeah. You know, um, so it, it yeah. follows the narrative. It follows the reason, and so it all of a sudden, uh, you know, it, it changes the 
the memory or, or it just influences the memory or it just starts to you know yeah. be almost manipulative rather than you know makes that child very vulnerable <laughs> absolutely and if you think about it like in every other context that a question gets repeated to a child, it is often because they either said something wrong or there is a correct answer. Because if you look at classrooms, yes. they think, oh, what is the capital of France? And they give an answer and it's like, now think really hard. What is the capital of France? Or are you sure about that? Do you want to have another guess? And often it is like when you repeat the question, it's like, mm, there was something wrong with your first question. So for that reason, especially if you've got these leading repeated questions, children have been taught from experience, I might want to change my answer towards this. Um, and it's what you brought up as well. It's like, especially within, for example, with your two police officers, the adults, is if you forget certain details, it's the the leading questions that come in there that then um, fill in the gaps. You're like, oh, well, I wasn't quite sure about what that light looked like, but my other colleague said, or the like, the lawyer just suggested X, Y, Z, or it can even be like your pre-existing knowledge. Like in every car that I've driven, that is where the light is situated. So I assume it's in the same place. And this is where scripts come into play. And that's quite important within both children and within adults' memories is that we develop scripts about activities that we experience every day. Um, and a lot of our memories are actually based on those scripts because we remember very script-consistent details. Uh, we've got scripts, for example, ordering coffee somewhere. Like you go into the cafe, you go up to the cash register, you put, provide your name, your coffee order, you pay, you wait around, they will call your name and you'll pick up your coffee. And so we can remember every time when somebody asks us like, oh, uh, what usually happens when you go and order your coffee? You will come up with those details. And if they ask you like, hey, last week when you ordered coffee, can you tell us what happens? And you'll base your memory on like, oh, yeah, this is what usually happens. And then was there anything that deviated from my normal script? But these scripts really help us not only encode the information and store the information, but also retrieve the information. And what we see is that um, as soon as something deviates from the script, it can either help us, but it can also become problematic. So little things that changes in between scripts can be more difficult to remember, and especially for children. Um, it is we are very good at remembering the script consistent information, but then the slight changes in between the specific episodes can be really difficult to determine, oh, what episode was it actually that I got an extra sugar or they made a mistake and spelled my name wrong? Or if they say like, oh, well, what day was that? It's like, oh, I don't know what happened, but if you ask me what specific day, it becomes really difficult. And that is what we often ask children to do. A lot of the crimes that they are being interviewed of um, um, are these repeated types of crimes. It's often like not a one-off event, not that they don't exist, but often children are interviewed about repeated types of events. And it becomes, it used to be that they actually had to particularize specific details to specific dates and times. And can you imagine like asking a four-year-old what happened two months ago on a Tuesday when like they don't even know what two months ago, the concept of time and yesterday before, after is really difficult. And based on the research that 
has been done, they've actually changed a lot of the legislation and requirements now. So rather than asking to particular for children to particularize these specific details, it's now just like the child's claims it happens between the 1st of January 2018 and the 31st of December 2022, then they mention specific details that happen, but they don't actually have to say what day, what time it is. They just talk about specific events within that time span. And that is now allowed for children to recall that. And that is based on, yes, they can be very accurate about specific events, but to try to particularize that, that's almost impossible. And I imagine, sorry, Celine, to, sorry. to jump in, but I, I imagine that gets extremely blurry when there's multiples of yeah. events, you know. So, you know, a car crash is probably a little bit easier to recall some of the detail because there's a one off car crash. But when there's something like domestic violence, and it's like, well, which one of yeah. the 70 instances? are we talking about and probably you know they were the serious instances there's probably another 300 which were you know just the yelling variety and slamming of doors and so on uh how am i supposed to recall that they become one big blur and i don't know whether was it whether it was this date or that date i I can't remember was it you know before dinner or after dinner like like, who knows They, they they Often that would happen before and after dinner. So how could yeah. I possibly, or during dinner as well? It's 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 a ludicrous thing, um, you know, for for us to even think that our our memories, yeah. uh, even it's the capable. best, even the best adult mind, yeah, not recall what once there is. I'm assuming here, so please j- jump in. Um, <laughs> but I, I assume the best mind can't go out and recall those types of details because of the sheer um confusion that's brought in by multiple events you know how do i recall now of a, of one event that happened you know, 9 months ago um yeah. or you know let's say 18 months by the time you get into court yeah when they were there was so many yes and it's like and so it's really good to see how the legal system has adjusted to that understanding about like well for children it's impossible to do that but it's only quite recently, like in the last five to seven years or so, that we've been researching the same for adults. Well, as you already said, within adults, we've got like domestic violence uh, victim survivors that go through exactly the same. It's multiple, very similar type of events that might slightly change, but they are still expected to particularize. And when it gets to court and they are being cross-examined by defense, which is already quite re-traumatizing when they have to face the defendant in court, um, they are then being scrutinized and attacked for misremembering details. Well, you said this happened on this specific day, but I can prove that my client was overseas at that point. So I put to you that you're lying about this. And if you're lying about this, you're lying about everything. And it becomes really complicated. So it's very important that we look at these types of things. And there's a lot more research now. But research doesn't mean anything if it then doesn't also get translated in how we prosecute these types of events and what we expect and what we can realistically expect from sorry victim survivors and witnesses to remember. And luckily with children, these adjustments are being made. Um, but it's still... 
it's still amazing to see that's how defense responds to statements from children at times and um they've Can learned you give some examples <laughs> uh it's i'm often asked uh, to be an expert witness to to evaluate the interviews that are being done with children um and then specifically to to show like often the first thing that defense will say will try to use is like the child has developed either a false memory or is being coached and then based on and they say oh we went through the recorded interview and we see all these inconsistencies and like inconsistencies doesn't tell you a lot about the accuracy of um of a recollection because it is very normal to have inconsistencies we have inconsistencies between retelling it's just the nature of memory so we see that often defense barristers are looking for wrong signs but those are the signs that they hang on to trying to prove that a statement might be like a lie or coached or inaccurate so it's yeah it it is unfortunate how how would one uh understand those those differences like we we clearly observe children being coached you know and 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 i mean they're my children are coached i'm trying to coach them about how to interpret the world how to respond to the world appropriately at least what i believe is appropriate you know there is coaching occurring and obviously trying to manipulate them into being better human beings or you know to to develop and obviously there's other forms of coaching like i want you to tell this story when you go up and you know police talk to you or you know if you have to go to court How, how what are the uh, the elements that that are telltale, or not telltale, because uh, I'm trying to, I'm struggling with the language. But w- yeah. what are the factors that I looked at to to try and understand? You know, when can you tell a child, uh, not with complete accuracy, but uh, with some uh, value attributed to it, that they're actually being coached versus they're they're making errors in their memory? Um, I think it's important to yeah to note that there's actually not like there's often a belief with these types of things that people are trying to set up children to coach but the actual type of children the actual cases number of cases where children are blatantly lying or being coached to say things that didn't happen are very very low like many of these cases are I would say the vast majority are real disclosures. Now, um, one thing that you can look at is how and when the child disclosed, um, who they disclosed to. But um, specifically, what research actually has shown that even when children are coached to say something, if you ask them, if you ask them to promise to tell the truth, they'll actually tell the truth even when they were coached. And it is oh, especially wow. the really young ones. They uh, isn't that cute. <laughs> it is really cute, and it's but it's not just done with like kids that hadn't experienced, but even with kids that had experienced these types of situations or that had been abused, and then they try like they very ethical experiments where they uh, try to coach them to say certain things. As long as you ask them, especially the young ones, to promise to tell the truth, they would. Um, a little bit older children will potentially lie to protect someone, but if they, yes. but they're actually more difficult to coach in the first place. So if something happened to them, they're less likely to actually lie about it. So it's only when they want to protect someone else 
that they they might be doing it, but again, asking them to promise to tell the truth will actually overcome a lot of those things, and they'll uh, they'll end up telling the truth. So I think we don't have to worry too much about coaching. And so when sure. lawyers talk about that um, or ask me, then it's often like you look at the disclosure, you look at the interview, and if they mm. promise to tell the truth and you hear the details, it's very clear that they're. Um, and is that somewhat because we we do tend to revert back to our nature so even with adults when they're coached they as much as they can do some of it once they're on the stand and you know the stress is on the pressure's on we revert back to our nature we're back to our our you know norm so to speak our, our natural biases and and you know we might learn some aspects but for the majority um you know it's such a a made-up performance that the whole thing is 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 that you, it's very difficult to coach for something that you've never been in. You know, it, it might be oh. different if if you're being coached, but you've been to court thirty times. You 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 can then play a role, but for for the first time, for most, which you know most people probably don't even have to in their lifetime, but for those who do very difficult to put on a performance without it either looking really stupid um because you're you're trying so hard that it's so unnatural and it looks a bit non nonsensical um or you just revert back to you know your standard and for a little kid it might be i'm actually trying to protect mummy or daddy because i don't want them to be in trouble and you can kind of yeah. see some of that starting to show up as as an example yeah, but then even that, even when you ask them, like, promise me to tell the promise truth, me. they will actually still say what really happened because children are very honest at heart. Um, it's beautiful. And, yeah. It's beautiful. So right? they're, they're actually quite reliable, I'm, I'm assuming, then, in, 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 at a specific age, potentially, um, yeah. that they're a yeah, bit more so reliable. They are more least, reliable. You know, giving them a, enough scope. Um, I'm assuming you can't ask for for real detail if if you know they're unlikely mm -hmm. to to you know see an, uh, an aspect, or they're very good with detail as well. Well, they they can be very good in detail. So you see a lot of indi individual differences, but you see that in adults as well. Like some people will remember more details than others, and ex exactly the same for children. Okay. Um, and what you see is that even if you look at two and a half and three year olds, can recall events that happened to them a few months before in quite a lot of details and they're like those are young kids um and of course the older you get the bigger your capacity to remember different types of things but the majority um the the, the biggest part is if they paid attention to the details so and attention and if it made sense within their context uh, and within their scripts that they already have in pre-existing knowledge and concepts um, so they can be really accurate and, and very detailed. And I think the bigger problem, though, is that um, it, it, it's not about the intention, but it is if we ask the wrong question or if we provide them suggestions, they might be more likely to go along with it um, than adults, or they can replace certain information if they have gaps in their memory with the suggestions that we provide them with, just like adults do. I remember one of my placements uh, when I was doing my university studies was with um, uh, child protection, and uh, I was very fortunate to watch some practitioners interview some kids in some, you know, um, uh, 
I suppose, investigations um, to to ensure the safety of, of children. And they were so good. The, the way that they would ask questions and the environment and making sure they felt safe, um, you know, that, that they weren't being led. Um, uh, you know, clearly the training, you know, at least at the time here here in Canberra was I, I was really impressed with how uh, a child wouldn't have probably felt so afraid um, even though there would have been you know well there was two adults in the room yeah. that were complete strangers to them they'd been pulled out of their classroom um, but you know there was a teacher that you know was potentially there to to assist and support so there was some familiarity and and it was lots of extremely open questions um you know not trying to point in any direction um and you know and also not giving signs of that's a good uh answer or a bad answer or you know kind of coming back to to spaces not necessarily just following it the whole way through like i just thought wow this is this is something that is so specialized um you know to to actually ask children um questions in a non-leading way to ascertain the actual at least you know trying to find truth um is such a skill because because of the ease at which you could manipulate as you say even with just repetitiveness um you know, is 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 something that they're they're accustomed to. You know, like you know, I know when I'm teaching my children to read, I might say, you know, try again, you know, because they've just skipped over a word. You know, which is exactly how you learn to read, right? Yeah. You just kind of run with the sentence. You've got a script in your mind; that's what it should say. So you just run. Yep. And, you know, I'm asking her or my daughter to to kind of pay a bit more attention to read it. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was absolutely. It was it was almost like an art. It seemed to me, at least, quite artistic. It was beautiful. Uh, it it absolutely is, and it's so important what you say, not just to have those open ended questions, but to also not provide that feedback towards like what you say is right or wrong, mm. um, and that is what is often you can ask all the right questions, but it's also how you ask the questions, and it can be the tone that you use or your nonverbal behavior that can influence the children. So it sounds like, it, it, as you said, it is a very specialized skill. So. Luckily, within the majority of, um, well, within every police force within Australia and all the different states, you only specialized officers will talk to children and will interview children. But if we look at European countries and specifically some of the Scandinavian countries, they won't even let police officers um, like necessarily talk to the very young children. They have specifically trained psychologists to do those interviews because they say it's so important and it's so important to get it right and how yeah. and we cannot expect that from police officers who do so many other tasks and need to have so many different skills like as you said it's it's almost an art to be able to do this so for that reason you just need to have people that are specifically trained just to do this and not expect them to do all these other things um and it's I think we are definitely like getting somewhere in Australia. There's, of course, things that can still be improved. But you see different states making a lot of adjustments to accommodate for this. Like within uh, New South Wales, they did it for um, 
for a couple of years had a trial, but they are now actually going to implement it everywhere within Australia, is that they do the initial interview, they give the evidence in chief. So this is technically when the child would testify in court and be um, be questioned by the prosecutor to give their statements. And then also the cross-examination from the defense barrister, they all pre-record this as soon as possible after they have disclosed the crime and also when charges are being um, pressed against uh, the defendant. Um, and then both the evidence in chief and cross-examination, that recording can be used in court. So the child actually doesn't have to come to court sometimes years after this has happened to come and testify there. So they can, like, it is both, like, closer to when it actually happens. So memory is fresher, but at the same time, you overcome a lot of the stress that is involved with having to go testify, having to be cross-examined by doing it within a room. They have intermediaries now also that are there to, similar to what you said about having a teacher there to make sure that there's someone for that has the child's best interests at heart, that can step in if questions are being asked in a way that the child might not understand. And they have now this program, which is going to be um, be brought out all over Australia because they only had it in specific children courts. Um, but they're introducing it everywhere and hopefully different states will follow a similar path. It, it seems like that's potentially beginning to lean a little bit more towards the inquisitorial model of saying if we can, at an early level, uh, inquire and try and ascertain information when the memory is going to be its strongest without undue stress and pressure with obviously very trained people, we can get a, a reasonable sense of what may have occurred or my apologies the recall of, of 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 a child of how they experienced that scenario what they witnessed uh, and then not going out and confusing that 12 months later or 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 beyond of, of saying now as an older person we've put in scripts and you've been asked the same questions 101 times by everyone under the sun including your parents who are you know, wildly concerned for you and want to look after you and so on. We're not mudding the waters. We can actually get something very early on versus that adversarial style, which is, you know, say nothing. You don't give a police statement. You, you know, immediately have a lawyer that's, that that's there. And, you know, we, we're, we're, we're prepping for what might come up and it just becomes this, this, circus you know um it seems that it's a bit more inquisitorial from from that sense of saying how can we guard against this for young vulnerable children um to get an understanding of what they witnessed and and then not have have to put them on the stand and and beat them up you know um uh, you know, well, manipulate and so on. I'm being a bit harsh here, but um, well, I, I think like they still do the cross examination. They still you know, do. They still do, and which is pre-recorded as well. But at least it is not in a courtroom. And of course, they already had those adjustments that they could be cross examined via CCTV, so they didn't have to be in the courtroom. But now it's pre-recorded. It's already taken care of. You, you, they, children don't have to worry about, indeed, a year and a half later when so many things have happened. Sometimes it's like it can be years later when it comes forward or it's it's awful. So um, 
at least they have it all done within a safer environment. Um, and how is that? How is that set up? If you don't mind me asking, like how, how, you know, how do they set up that environment, and who who's present usually in those s- scenarios? So I don't know all the specifics, but um, the judge is there, the prosecutor, the defense barrister, an intermediary. Um, I don't believe that the parents are there, but the intermediary is there. Well, the parents are outside, but not in the same room. Um, And it can be, um, I'm just thinking it can be a room in the courts or it can be a room in in another uh, environment, but I'm not 100% sure on the specific uh, room setup. Okay. Um, so it's still quite adversarial, but yes, it, yeah. it's still trying to protect the child a little bit more. It, it, it is protecting the child, first of all, because they also don't have to do it repeatedly and come back. Like it's just a one-off. This is when it happens and it's done. It's all pre-recorded. And from now on, this is their statement. This is their evidence in chief. This is their uh, cross-examination. Um. So it, it, it's just like done and dusted early on um and in the best possible way for mm. the child uh, rather than having to have that always hanging above your head that you have to go and I, I can see how that could be a lot more protective for children that they don't have to carry that or be burdened by that be fearful of of, of that they don't have to continue to talk about it necessarily yeah. that of, of what how they have to participate in, in the future it kind of just gets done and then they yeah. don't have to return yeah. uh, still quite daunting though <laughs> It sounds like uh, not everyone has to necessarily behave during that, um, uh, but yeah, they, they want to behave a little bit because otherwise yeah. it kind of ruins the the whole validity of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they have to kind of behave to a level, um, you know, because it will be shown in the court later on of saying this is how the child was into, or this is the evidence, the, yeah. the, the child's evidence, um, yeah. or that's how it will be presented. Yes. Um, but at the same time, yeah. No. Gosh, it's, it's still pretty, pretty daunting. Oh, it's so daunting. And what you said about like the inquisitorial system, I'm originally from the Netherlands and they have, if, if they could create something like that over here, it would be really great. Where actually, when it's when the child first, we've got an inquisitorial system in the Netherlands, um, and when it actually comes to the police, there is already a group of psychologists, both research and clinical psychologists, and then also social workers, um, police officers, and lawyers. Um, are within that group and they actually look at the interview they look at the investigation and then depending on what they find they actually decide if it should go to a court case or not or if it should be dealt with in another way and it's really early on and the whole emphasis is to see well what is the best outcome um within this context like how reliable is the evidence already would it stand up to the scrutiny when it goes to court, but also like what we can we do to help the vulnerable person that has made um, the accusation within this, uh, within this context. Um, It's yeah, it's a very different approach because you take it so early on and you're just making sure that you protect everybody involved within the, within that case and not put anyone like through a lot of issues for cases to be undetermined or um, that it goes to a retrial or anything like that, which is less likely in the Netherlands anyway, because we don't have a jury system. Um, 
we don't have juries in the inquisitorial system either. So, but yeah, I, I sometimes think the adversarial system is a very um, punitive system, not for the defendant, but technically for anyone else involved. Uh, it's so stressful and it really is set towards people who have enough money to be best represented. Um, and it isn't actually set up to protect the victim survivors in these situations at all. Mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate. Is, is, is there, and I, I don't understand this, this world, so hopefully you can um, <laughs> shine a bit of a light on it, but in the inquisitorial system, is there still... Uh, is it inquisitorial in terms of trying to collect the, you know, uh, with an understanding of we're trying to understand what the facts are, um, you know, in, within an inquisitorial manner rather than a adversarial manner? And then after you can still have an adversarial points of view in terms of you still argue a point of view afterwards or the whole thing is we're just trying to find out in an inquisitorial manner um, and then from that we take that as being the best guess about what has occurred Um, because we're guessing no matter which way and obviously that's why there's these thresholds (laughs) of saying you know beyond reasonable doubt or whatever the other version is Um, uh, what what's the difference there and I'm, I'm assuming there's challenges in in both as there often are in when there's two main systems Absolutely. So if you look within our adversarial system in Australia, you've got the police does an investigation. They collect all the evidence, interview all the witnesses, um, interview the suspects, the victims, um, and then create a police brief. Um, on Based on the brief, that's when they uh, press charges or decide to press charges, but they hand over the brief to the prosecution. And Prosecution is technically completely separate from the police. They go by the brief, via the brief, and then they actually take it to trial. And in trial, it's prosecution against defense. They both argue the case. So when the brief is presented by police, it's both presented to prosecution and also to defense. So they should get exactly the same evidence, and they then prepare their cases to go to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, within the inquisitorial system, the prosecutor technically works together with the police and they actually direct the police to determine who should be interviewed, who they should be talking to, what else kind of information that they need. And together they prepare the case against the defendants. Um, this is then also on the guidance of the judge. And when you look at the court case, so in Australia and the adversarial system, you've got the judge at the front who is facing both prosecution and defense. And then you've got the jury on the sides. Um, within the inquisitorial system, at least in the Netherlands, you've got the judge and next to the judge is actually the prosecutor who is then talking to the defendant who sits at like facing the judge with uh, their barrister. So it is less of like the two parties and the judge is deciding on it, but it's actually the judge who leads the prosecutor slightly different name in Dutch, and then um, the prosecutor who's guiding the police. So they are all like talking to each other, really like trying to like be inquisitive, trying to find out what has happened, collecting all the details. The judge can direct the prosecutor to say, I need more information on this or make sure to also talk to that person. And then they create the case, which is then laid towards the defendant um, and the barrister, and then they can give their version of events what happened as well. 
Does that mean it it doesn't act as a trial in in essence that the parties would come together and then more information would be sought and then they kind of go off and they come back together and more information is sought or or it's actually all gathered at the time of, you know, the judge and the prosecutor. Yeah. Um, so they obviously all, guided by the judge in terms of what's the information that's pertinent to this yeah, it, it, to, to be it understood. Is, yeah, it's mostly, sorry, I should say, it's mostly the prosecutor, but the judge can give directions at a certain point, but it's all uh, done before it comes towards the judge. So okay. um, at that point, the judge can then say, do this more, like, oh, I need more information on this, but it's mostly done during the, like, actual court case uh witnesses are also um not necessarily cross-examined as like not the same way that they cross-examined um within the adversarial system but they still are being asked to provide statements there's direct questions the judge can also ask direct questions to the witnesses that is a lot more uh like it's more normally the judge within the adversarial system refrains from intervening. It's mostly the prosecutor and the defense barrister asking questions. Um, but within the inquisitorial system, the judges, when they ask questions throughout the trial as well. Um, and it's the majority is done before it actually gets to the court case. Um, yeah. And, and is the idea that they still explore both sides so that, um uh you know uh does the judge uh is is yeah. the role of the judge to try and entertain both sides similar to what an adversarial system does as well um how how does it differ in in that like obviously i, I get it when there's a defendant and a and a prosecutor yeah. the defense only holds one side and they you yeah. know, they'll throw any trick so, under the sun and so do, <laughs> so do the prosecutors. It's such a battle. Um, and, you know, sometimes, well, b- both sides are trying to put it, what they believe is important information in front of, of, of the court. Um, uh, you know, some to muddy the waters, others to to go out and say, well, this is just the fact that really does need to be considered. You know, so it's, it's quite complicated as to which one's the actual fact and which one's... Yeah. Is, is there designed to actually just muddy the waters because they're trying to say that both are the same thing. Um, it's very, I mean, it's awful. I mean, it's adversarial. Uh, You're fighting with each other. There's yeah. there, there's tension, there's anger, there's there's all sorts of things going on. Yeah. Um, h- how are both sides reflected or it doesn't need both sides to be reflected in a inquisitorial? It, Sorry, these might be a bit naive questions. No, 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 no. Absolutely. And it's like, I've and, read and about I, it, but I don't. <laughs> and I can also only go by like what I know from the Netherlands. So sure, then, sure. Like, there's other yes, countries yes. that, um, so it, it, it's still considered like it, it's technically, well, these are the facts and this is the problem because there's still issues with inquisitorial system. It's not the, debatable who <laughs> what system is better but um it, it is it doesn't solve all the issues that we see in the adversarial system sure, sure. but technically you still have like well this is the case that prosecution and the prosecutor together with the police has put together these are all the facts that we found and the idea is that the police doesn't go try out to prove necessarily your guilt but they just like they present the facts of the case as they are there that show the likelihood that this person is guilty 
um, and the prosecutor creates a case, but they are just like positioned in a different way. And it's less about them, the two narratives that they have. And it's more an opportunity for like the defense then to go into a discussion about like where they think that the facts are wrongly represented or where they believe that things have gone wrong or where they think that their um, their clients isn't guilty based on what is presented or facts that they might have that the prosecution hasn't taken into consideration. If you look at the adversarial system where they both get the brief and they both spin their own narrative around Mm -hmm. the brief. And it is like two stories are being told against each other. Inquisitorial, it's more like a discussion. What is about, well, this is what we found. This is what we have at this point. And then it's like, well, how as defense do you respond to this rather than trying to like that the focus is really on completing well, trying to find like an opposite narrative towards the other person. Mm-hmm. I think in the end, that's what it still comes to because you're trying to explain the same facts. Um, right. If it's inquisitorial or adversarial, we're still working with the same proven facts, allegedly. And we are trying to say, trying to work around the story about what happens. Um, but I feel while the adversarial is really once against the other competing. The judge sits there while the jury makes a decision, or if it's a judge-only trial, the judge makes a decision about how they believe. This is more a discussion about the <clears throat> about how the facts and the um the possibilities of that this person has committed this crime. Mm. Sorry, it's oh, quite removed from the original topic. Yeah, well, I, I asked the question because obviously it's it, it's pertinent to the 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 idea of how do we protect vulnerable people because it doesn't just relate to children. That that there are, I mean, in, in many many ways, I would say that everyone in the legal profession, um, uh, sorry, anyone that gets caught up in in this legal world. Um, is doing it usually for the first time and it's so daunting and it's frightening. You, you're trying to get it right. The stakes are high. Most people have already got a position that they formulated in their mind as they, that they, you know, want to uphold. Um, you know, we, we you know, we're, we're, we're humans. So we do this right, wrong, good, bad. This is true. This is false sort of scenario. And, and, and those biases, you know, in, in, come into the rumor, are so painful, let alone then I'm trying to do what's right and wrong in a system I don't understand. You yeah. know, like like, you know, even the whole concept of um people think that evidence is anything that is said versus it needs to be adopted, you know, it needs to be uh, accepted as evidence. You know, yeah. even that is not understood very widely um it is a weird concept isn't it isn't yeah. it it's it, it's it's like you know, i scratch my head i'm like i don't understand this legal world at all let alone you know and i, I i've at least had a little bit of exposure yeah. um yeah just through my interest but most people had zero um and and they understand nothing about it like the, there's all these rules that they have no um privilege to and he is an interesting one that i had no idea that blew my mind when i found out that um a, a person that i know who was um uh, a uh, um uh, going 
to court uh, for damages with regards to something that had occurred to them in in their childhood, mm-hmm. um, and e and they came to a point in in I suppose the legal system where they either accepted what was being offered on the table pre court mm-hmm. or they went to court, uh, and at that point their counsel advised them that if you actually go to court now. Um, and we don't get a successful result, you could be now liable for the other party's costs. And that might mean your home and everything else because the costs are very high. So, um, you know, yet we can't even tell you, you know, because there would have to be a fairly big disparity between what they're providing you and what what the final outcome. So even if you did have a final outcome, if it came close to what was being offered, your costs, their costs might be factored into you have you now being liable for. It. I was like, oh my goodness, and and I get it because that does place a burden on you. Can't you know people can't just be vexatious and say anything. And, yeah, but it's like, oh my goodness, it like shouldn't that have been understood a little bit earlier in the in the and at the same time, there's probably an infinite number of things that that can't be understood. So, you know, when we're talking about trying to protect participants in in the legal uh, system young people obviously that that's that's a very obvious one but i would say adults as well you know even the clever ones think they're clever but they, they don't necessarily understand this whole new language or you know rule set it's it, it's so complex and you know i'd love to hear about what your thoughts are in terms of how do we how do we do that you know um uh, or, yeah. or, or what what does the court currently maybe do to try and uh, make that you know create a space because obviously the idea I'm, I'm assuming of the court um, is, is to serve the community and understand what is you know uh, what has occurred and um, produce an outcome that is good for the community and that doesn't necessarily mean jail time it could be anything that they, they're like what what's good for our community. So there is a lot of emphasis nowadays on protecting vulnerable witnesses and victims, victim survivors, um, or providing them with a fair access to justice. And there's different ways that can be done. So there's a lot of uh, people, they're working in a lot of different uh, states within Australia now with intermediaries that make sure that technically they are able there to when a witness or victim is being cross-examined but also just being interviewed when they have to provide their statements that they are being asked questions in ways that they can understand um that if um certain things overstep or go the wrong way that they the intermediary can step in and can direct the lawyers to ask the question in a different way or to use words that are better understandable and these are for vulnerabilities like cognitive disabilities or um it, it can be like uh, different types of psychological aspects that can be going on, uh, but also due to the nature of the crime that they've experienced or witnessed, and this is especially within sexual assaults, uh, historical sexual assaults. We also see that we have with these types of cases, um, witnesses and victim survivors are allowed to have support persons and in some courts even support animals there when they testify and this is of course to make sure like to 
try to counteract the traumatizing impact that testifying and being cross-examined about these effects can have. But what you brought up is um, a really good point, and that is even just like social legal education, having a better understanding of the processes. A lot of um, prosecutor officers, so Department of Public Prosecutors, have like um, witness and victim survivor like little guidelines they have they specifically i know um in a couple of courts within new south wales they do great work um with specifically for victims of domestic and family violence where they have these court clinics where they actually get people together that have to go and testify in their cases and they show them what the courtroom looks like who is going to be standing where, what type of questions are being asked. The victim survivor can ask all the different questions that they might have just about what happens in court, what type of questions, what they will be asked, what they have to answer or what they can say, I don't know to. And it is especially these types of things like you go into the stand and it's not just you not remembering stuff, but it's also not knowing exactly what the rules are. What are you allowed to say to a lawyer? Can you say, oh, I don't want to answer that? Or can they really push you to provide an answer, even if you don't know the answer? So it's those certain uncertainties that they are educating um, within these clinics, and that is specifically for victim survivors of domestic and family violence. And then there's also broader like witness counseling and guidelines and guidance uh, when they come to court um, for vulnerable victim survivors. At the same time, I think it's also very important for suspects to get similar, um, similar like protective, not services, but, but by guidelines there. Um, we often see that especially vulnerable suspects are, it's difficult for them to act in their own best interest. And you could argue everyone that comes in contact with the legal system, as you said, is vulnerable because it's such an unfamiliar, daunting uh, situation that you're in. And I think a lot of us, the, the one thing that we would do, especially if we become a suspect and we might be innocent, but we're a suspect, is I'll just talk to the police. And once they hear my story, they find out that I'm actually innocent. Um, but with that, you actually set aside a lot of your rights and you might not actually be acting in your best interest, especially if you are innocent, by thinking that you'll clear it up because the system is not set up to facilitate that. Once you're a suspect, it's a very specific route that's being taken and approach that's being taken to your interview, to finding certain evidence against you. And it is very important that we protect people and all those situations to give them the, like, the best possible access to justice. Sorry if that's a bit vague. No, no, it, 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 it definitely definitely makes sense because the the uh, the ease in which we can go out and uh, make errors is is often based on not knowing the rules. And you know, it, you know, we, anyone can write an essay on either side, you know, for or against capital punishment, you know, and and, and there's there's really compelling evidence in both scenarios we just write a good essay on it um, and i bet you can quote you know really prominent people and research and all sorts of stuff so it's it's not difficult to 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 hire someone who can write a very you know compelling argument the the problem is we're trying to actually support people in in understanding the 
you know, what has occurred and, and, it, and that gets complicated when there's children or, for example, adults who are trying to now talk about what happened as a child. Yep. So in, in some sense, we're talking to an adult about a child experience and how they to recall and at the same time protect the accused, you know, and that's a very complicated thing to to do in both because we've seen, you know, lots of instances where humans behave badly and just, you know, there's, there's enough of us that some will um, and, and trying to trying to do this in a way where justice can occur um, uh, or, you know, and, you know the, the truth will prevail in most instances is, 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 is incredibly difficult and also not to harm people along the way, like harming children. I love the idea of we do it early for children yep. so they don't have to bear that burden. Um, but at the same time, I imagine you then, you know, things have to be prepped early as yep. well. Um, you know, why that couldn't be afforded to adults um, because their memory is going to fracture as well. Uh, you know, just because you're an adult doesn't make you unbiased. No. And I also spoke with one of your colleagues about even how evidence is demonstrated these days. And, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, some of the shenanigans in the States of how they, you know, the bigger the, the screen that they bring out or these big cardboard sort of effective like banners of showing a tweet or something or other to to make the impact so visceral and 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 and, and enormous all these crazy tactics you know and, and so even questions about how you design a you know a courtroom and you know, having some standardization so that everyone has the same you know big screen which is helpful for everyone to observe can also be very daunting because uh, also it can push a particular button and, and you know, yeah. we're going to all exploit it uh, knowing that, you know, having standards about, you know, how big are the, you know, the evidence props, you know, because they are props. It's a theatre um, that, that, that you can bring in. I actually spoke with a, well, sorry, my apologies. I listened to a barrister on the weekend um, uh, in some training that I was doing and he was talking about how, you know, they are extremely theatrical um, and, and even though they're not allowed to move outside of their um, box so to so, so to speak they will do things like lean in or they'll even put their back toward the the witness like you know dismissing them um, you know how they use their, their 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 arms and tone you know and volume all these things and you know he spoke very frankly which was um, quite quite nice because I think you know it it opened up to you know, just how they do it, and he, he specifically ca called it theatrics. You know that they they use theatrics. Was this in Australia or in the United States? Uh, it, it, it was in Australia. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, uh, I know and obviously this is part of training. So, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, but but uh, you know we all know it. Um, because all you got to do is observe it and no one acts that way where you turn your back to someone, but you look in a courtroom and, and this is all these absurdities going on in this space. I and, scratch my head and go, people, how do people behave like this? <laughs> but also like we all know about it and people on the jury also know about it, but you're still being influenced by it. It is, yeah. And, and that's, the, that's the, the problem with it is that even that you are aware, it cannot, you cannot help but have it influence your decision-making and how you interpret the situation because, yeah, it's just like that unconscious bias that it feeds into towards um, 
Yeah. It's that whole, you know, throw some mud. You know, I put it to you that you were angry. You were furious at the time, weren't you? It's like, well, now you've just put that out in the air. Everyone's heard that I was furious and angry. But also, even though I might say no, but I don't, I don't get (laughs) to, you know, I don't get to turn around. So I put it to you that I wasn't, I was calm and I was quite, quite uh, grounded and. They don't let you do that, you know? I know. And then even the words, like, I put it to you, like, that's such a weird thing. What and is that? It's just, I, I never understood that. I'm like, that is so right. It's so wrong. It's so weird. And then with the um, with the children, they used to do that as well in cross-examination. Can you imagine if you've got, like, a four-year-old and they're sitting there on the stands and because that was what was happening. And then you've got one with a little weird wig that says, I put it to you. And he's like... I'm sorry, how can they understand even what that means if an adult doesn't quite understand what it means? Yeah. How are false memories created? What what is that? I mean, that's a space that, that, you know, is that a term that talks about that someone just believes that something occurred that didn't occur? Or is is it something that if you are questioned about something for long enough or if you're running with a particular particular narrative that you just start to create, additional you know scripts for example like you know if something happened nine months ago and i'm wedded on what happened in that coffee shop yeah you know i could genuinely believe no no i spoke with this person because i usually speak with that person and you know like what 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 does false memories mean maybe maybe we can start even there okay okay. so yeah because you threw in like a lot of different aspects that (laughs) that we look at in research um so false memories in research we talk about when you have a a full memory of an event or something happening that never actually happens and this is detailed this is not just a false belief so you believe something happened but actually when you think about it you can like that video recorder you can actually see it play back in your mind like oh this is what happened to me a whole event oh usually a whole event yes or at least a, a sequence of events well, we mostly is that usually a, a, like a couple of minutes is that like what when um, we talk about an event it, it is, can is it detail so if it can change so research has uh differed from implanting false memories of people um, going up in a hot air balloon ride and they were just with they were told or they came to believe that they went into um, a hot air balloon and went off the road like at a country fair went up in the sky looked around for a little bit and came down again um, people have come to believe that they uh, got their fingers uh, trapped in a mouse trap when they were playing outside uh, they have come to believe that they had been attacked by a dog and bitten and had to go to hospital. And researchers have even made uh, children believe that they had been abducted by a UFO um, for a while and then had been returned home after a while. And children will elaborate on that. So usually within the false memory research paradigm, what they uh, what researchers do is they speak to parents or people that know the participant very well they get two or three events that have actually happened so this can be for example a birthday party or a family holiday or a specific event and then they also come up with one event and they verify with their uh, family members that this actually never happened to that person then for um, a few weeks in a row they will repeatedly interview 
the participants about all four events. So the three events that actually happened to the person and the one that they made up and they use different techniques. So they can use context reinstatement, which for example, is like, ah, oh, it's very common that people don't remember certain things, but just try to think back about the situation. What did it smell like? How did you feel like? What were the different things that you can see trying to reinstate the context of that event, even though it never happens. And they do that, uh, they use very suggestive and leading type of things like oh what, what kind of people would you have spoken to like insinuating that there were people um they can sometimes also use uh doctored photos so for example with the hot air balloon rides what they did is they showed photos three real photos of their childhood events that they got from their um from their family members and then one doctored photo where they put the participant as a little kid within the hot air balloon and say, look, you were in this hot air balloon. What can you tell me about that ride? Um, and they do that over a few weeks' time, and then they just ask them to recall. And what you see is that over time, about one in four people actually come to remember and have vivid memories and extra details about that go beyond of the little information that you provided them with. Um, and they stay and they keep on remembering that. So that's about one in four adults. And we see with children, that's about like one in four to one in three children start to remember these types of events. Um, How does that occur in the real world? Obviously, I, I can see that suggestibility uh, occurring where you know, little by little over several weeks and, and obviously something so powerful as like, you know, Photoshopped yeah. Oh, yeah. images is going to be powerful because it kind of says it must be true so therefore you know let me let me look and recall other yeah. other elements of that and you know we've got other scripts so i must have been with mum and dad and da, 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 da. we just kind of pop, populate the rest of it um as we do with everything you know where there's yeah. a gap we fill it how does that happen in the real world so it can happen in various ways. So um, one actually really famous example is from Jean Piaget, who is a very famous developmental psychologist, and he came up with a couple of tasks to measure cognitive development in young children. So he was actually abducted when he was a baby. So he was out with his nanny, and then his nanny came home um, one day to the parents and said, oh, somebody stole Piaget, Jean, in his little... Um, uh, like how do you call it, pram and took off with him and then they found him back turns out he was never actually adopted but she was gambling or something like that and she left him outside in his pram but he actually had a vivid memory of being abducted and of the abductors and what they look like and everything like that so um, that is a, a real life example but it's also other things like often stories get told between family members and they are like, oh yeah, I remember that specific birthday party, but people make mistakes and they mix it up. And then you can come to remember that something actually happened to you, what might've happened to your brother or your sister or to someone else, just because a story like kind of got retold in a certain way that wasn't actually quite correct. I've got a friend and she's like, um, she traveled a lot when she was a child with her family and she remembers that she went to the Grand Canyon with her parents. And she like, she says, I know what it felt like. I know that I was standing there. I was looking at the Grand Canyon and she was in, she's been to America heaps of times as a child with her family. And then when she was talking one day to her parents about, oh, that time that we visited the Grand Canyon and they were like, we've never been there. We've been like to LA, but we and to Vegas, but we never actually went to see the Grand Canyon. So I don't know. And she has a vivid memory of it. Um, 
it's actually informed also other things where people have been wow. told like this memory wasn't real and they say I know this memory wasn't real, so they don't believe it, but they still have the memory when they think back about it. It's like, but I was standing there. So there's this non-believed memory type of thing where you have this whole sensory experience of something that happened to you, but you know it never happens, which is really weird. And that is slightly different than, for example, when we've got gaps in our memory for an event and by suggestions, people are changing details so i thought it was like i know i saw a car i don't remember what the color was you said oh it was a red car and in my memory it becomes a red car is sure. that, is that's that a just going out yeah yeah, yeah. One, one is kind of putting in doubt or leading and then you're kind of yeah. like yeah i'll just take on that bit of information yeah. where the other one over time it, it almost becomes like there's there's lots of scripts that are there or sometimes even none, as you mentioned as well, but there's at least enough references of something having happened. And over time, you actually come to the lead and it begins to kind of develop more and more detail and it starts to actually feel like it did occur. And, and you actually have objectively there are objective measures to say, no, you never saw the, you were never at the Grand Canyon, uh, not with your parents. Yeah. And I, um, and I think like you, even if somebody suggests something to you and you accept, and we call that misinformation and you accept the misinformation and integrate it into your memory. And this is no part of your memory. You can say that's a false memory for that specific detail. Uh, But I always, and then, but I like to think of that like oh, accepting misinformation and more when we talk about false memories, thinking about these rich false memories about all events. Um, if you really like go into the nitty gritty, you like as soon as you remember something that wasn't there and integrate it, then you can say that is a false memory. Um, but it, it, it's more semantics towards like mm. how what you would constitute as a false memory or not. Yeah, but it almost feels like a, a false memory is more about something that stands alone that hasn't occurred versus something that kind of did happen, but there's some vagueness about who was there or wasn't. And then yeah, like or you misremember details or yeah. you have accepted misinformation about details that were there, which is technically still a false memory if I like. Sure. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm very intrigued by the ones, the whole events where all of a sudden you, yeah. You, had, you would just have a memory of being abducted by UFOs and the whole classroom was there. This is the little kids that started. They had about one in five kids starting to believe they were abducted by UFOs and had very strong stories. And even after debriefing, a lot of kids still believed they had been abducted by a UFO, which was quite interesting. Wow. Adults as well, by the way. You can make them believe things like that too. How, how often are these occurring? I know that you said that one in four we kind of create that when they're put into that condition so yeah. that's that's obviously you know um uh, talks to a certain susceptibility and and yeah. um you know but you're also in a very strong controlled environment that's yes. actively trying to achieve that and is is trying to trick you right and and, oh. and it's very compelling yeah. um versus it happening in 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 the real world because obviously a, a series of of things have to build on one another for someone to begin yeah. to believe believe that it's not like you just wake up and you go this happened to me it sounds like it it builds over time rather than a spontaneous 
false memory shows up or, or yeah. does it happen that way as well? Um, it, there are spontaneous self-generated false memories, like they can happen. But what you see and what really brought about the research is that uh, people came, and this is around the 90s especially, uh, people went into therapy because they had certain feelings and then um, very suggestive therapy techniques were used and often hypnosis and during those types of hypnosis they then came to recover specific memories of childhood sexual abuse or other types of things um and what we see in real life cases the one that we have is that people created false memories for whole events under these very suggestive hypnotic type of therapy techniques um what you also see and this was how a lot of the research with the kids came about is that they started like one child made a disclosure in a specific case police interviewed them then went up to the parents of the preschool and said this has happened to one of the kids here please all go home and talk to your children and make sure it didn't happen to them which is of course not a very (laughs) good thing to do so of course parents were very panicky they started then talking to their children they were asking very suggestive questions because they were told by police to technically do this this is in the 80s um then they uh the kids came forward police were then interviewing the children by saying your friend told me that this happened to him at school can you tell me what remember providing specific details from what one child told in the interview of the other children they took on that information and then started confabulating even more so came up with more details and before you know it you had a whole classroom of children all making very similar accusations uh with a lot of details and because they were so consistent the police Mm -hmm. was like well something must be going on here not realizing that how they interviewed and technically cross-contaminated all of the statements from the children by providing information that other kids had given. And the problem with cases like that is that the very first original disclosure could be very correct, but now you've contaminated everything by using these types of interviewing techniques. And that happened quite a lot in the 80s, early 90s. And because of that, all these like interviewing techniques were introduced, all the research came about to, well, how can we prevent this from happening? How should we interview children? Mm. And that is why all these new introductions have uh, happened. And that all, all almost goes full full circle of our understanding that children in actual fact are quite good witnesses and quite reliable witnesses, yep. but it's the adults who need to be very cognizant about how do you interview children, how do you ask questions, um, yep. when do you ask questions, you know, how they're supported to provide um, their experience in their account um, uh, and also how easy it is to uh, you know, falsify me- me- memories or at least you know confuse them if, if we don't use those right language uh, sets and and you know looking after the vulnerable um, you know more so looking after the courts you know we're, we're trying to get a good result for the community and, and yeah. the best way to do that is through individuals not being pressured, not that adversarial, but trying to, you know, be respectful for young people and, and adults alike. Um, but in actual fact, the the full circle is children are reliable. Um, yes. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to allow, like, give them an opportunity to be reliable. They're actually good witnesses, um, uh, and they're actually honest 
witnesses, you know, especially in that sort of promise scenario, there, there's a yeah. likelihood of them trying to tell the, the the truth. They're kind of primed that way um, and not making it, you know, punitive or, or, or even couching like, you know, responding to them is a, is, is a great danger, um, trying, trying to be neutral so that there isn't a sign of you're doing good, you're doing bad because they're so in tune with that. You know, they, they want to be good you know, participants, um, which can obviously, you know, it's cute, but can can make yeah. a lot of problems um, as well. Celine, where can people find out more about this? I know that you've written about this as well. You know, what are some good texts, books that that we can look at? You know, children as as, as witnesses, their reliability, you know, memory, a- adults, the legal system. Um, I'm asking for a lot, but yeah. some of our listeners might want to continue reading on and and, and you know, are intrigued to, to, to find out more? Um, I've got colleagues at Griffith University that have a centre of investigative interviewing um, that do, if you're very interested in, they have really good and cute short introductory, or oh, not introductory, like but like short videos that tell you about, for example, interviewing children. Uh, but also like different issues with interviewing specific vulnerable suspects. They're very short, they're easy to understand, but give you a lot of good information if you just want to have like quick fix on those types of things. Um, There is a, if you're interested in vulnerability within the legal system, I've written a book about interviewing vulnerable suspects, which might be interesting. Um, happy to provide you a link uh, to that as well. It's written for legal practitioners specifically and providing like handy guidelines and how to adjust how you're talking and interviewing people that have specific vulnerabilities. Um, and where there, can people find a copy of that? Is that that is online? Is um, there, there are e-copies available to buy. There's also uh, hard copies. I'm just, I should know this. No, that's fine. But <laughs> the title is Interviewing Vulnerable Suspects. Interviewing Vulnerable Suspects, yes. Um, and um, I'm happy to provide you with a link towards the, Please, the yeah. publisher website. It's Rootledge uh, Publishers. Um, I've done quite some work as well on adults memory for repeated events so this is um victim survivors of domestic and family violence um so got some articles if you um want to like if you google my name they will come up as well um then specifically children it's um i think it's very interesting like this new program that is being developed within new south wales to make sure that like that we have the early pre-recording of the evidence in chief. Um, if you go to the Department of Public Prosecutors website, they have quite a lot of information on that right. um, on that trial and um, useful information just if you want to know more about that. And legal comparative type stuff. I'm thinking about what a good source would be to read can't think about it like immediately um false memories research i think the 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 godmother of false memory research is elizabeth loftus um she has done a lot of interviews um but also a lot of articles for academics but also 
layman that just want to read more about it. So if you Google her name, you will come across, but I can also send you some articles that might be interesting if you have a opportunity to share them. And I'll think about the legal system one, and which would be a good one to have a look into. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. That's fantastic. Yeah, any links that you can share, we're happy to to yeah. provide them to our listeners. And one final thing before I let let you go, for those who you know, might one day you know find themselves you know needing to act as a as a witness or you know be on the stand, or those that that you know maybe looking at that in the future, what what advice would you give them? Understanding you know about the system you know memories uh you know how we how we perform under pressure you know obviously theatrics what are the what do you think is 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 you know a, a good way to to try and be in those scenarios understanding that you know, there's a lot that's going on for most that it's it's their first time um i think one thing that's really important to do this is rather your a witness, a victim survivor, if it's for a one-off or for repeated events, is note down your recollection of the event as soon as you can after you've witnessed it or after you've experienced the event when it's safe to do so. Um, you can scribble it down on paper. You can take make a voice note on your phone or write it down on your phone, but just try to write it down because, as I mentioned, our memory starts to decay very rapidly. So if you can do that within the first few hours after you've experienced or witnessed it, you have the most accurate recollection of your memory that you'll ever get. Um, once you have that, uh, it can be a contemporaneous note, and you can actually use it as a memory aid even when you have to provide your testimony. When you're speaking to, it is it is tricky, when you're speaking to police, um, know that especially with specific if you're a witness, like you can have a support person there. You are allowed to have a support person with you if you need one when you're talking to police. If you become a suspect for one reason or another, um, don't talk until you have spoken to legal representation. They like it, it's not like in America, like I want a lawyer present. Like there's different rules and regulations here, but you do not have to talk, you do not have to engage, and don't think that just explaining what has happened might help you, but make sure that you have spoken to a legal representative for yourself before you actually engage within a discussion. When you actually go to court, um, depending on the courts that you go to, they often actually have um, victim and witness counsellors that actually will help you and introduce you to the specific courtroom or show you what's going on. They can actually also sit with you like in between, if you're not allowed to sit in the courtroom, but you have to wait outside. So in the waiting room for the witnesses or the uh, people that have to testify, um, they can sit with you and take up on those opportunities. Like often you feel like, oh, it looks silly or people can be embarrassed to take up these opportunities. But please engage with them because they are specifically there because this is a situation that you're not used to and you're not expected to be used to it or to know about it. So like if there's an opportunity to engage with that um try to do it because they it can really help once you understand uh, understand it is to like the whole point of 
our adversarial system is to create a doubt about your statement. And every question is there to like even make yourself doubt your own answers and your own memories. So you do not have to reply straight away, like sit, take a breath before you answer, just think about what have they actually asked you. And if you don't know the answer, it is completely okay to say, I don't know, within the courts. And they might keep on going about that fact, but it's all right because that is how our human memory works. And it is fine to take your time to not be rushed by those people, by those legal practitioners trying to push you into answering or getting an answer from you um, and to just take a breath and... Um, and recollect and say don't know if you don't know absolutely incredible advice i think you know going from all the way to recording your your memory as as soon as you can that's why you know even as a uh, clinical psychologist it's important that i write my notes as soon as i can you know uh, because you know my memory will fade you know things will be thrown out that that were important you know, things we might be added that <clears throat> I think we may be discussed. You know, it's just important to 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 do that because our memory is very um, fallible uh, if if not treated with respect, and it needs to be treated early, um, or, or understood that its best um, performance will be early. Um, but I think also what you say in terms of having an assurance that. You know, inform yourself before you go out and give any statements. Make sure that you, you know, speak to your own counsel. And, and I like that idea of taking up the opportunity of having those supports. You know, we know that we're social beings. So, yeah. you know, don't be embarrassed by having someone there to, to yeah. support you, familiarizing yourself. And and that fantastic advice about, you know, taking a breath. You know, I've, I've heard it in, in, in other instances where people say, you know, uh, when you ask the question, repeat the question back to yourself yep. in your own voice um, before you answer so you can get an, a chance to understand the question because the, the questions are even formulated in such a way that can be difficult to understand what is the question being asked. So I think that idea of pausing, taking a breath is important. Um, and, and um, you know, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure, uh, Celine, to, to speak with you. Um, you know, I appreciate your your uh, you know, amazing knowledge in this space and particularly, you know, looking at the vulnerable, you know, children and adults alike. And uh, I like the fact that you uh, uh, see the, the immense case of looking after uh, both and, you know, as much as we want to protect children uh, immensely, you know, we, we were children to ourselves and it is scary, especially if you're a victim, you know, especially if, if something awful has occurred. Uh, to you um, or on the other side you're being accused of something that haven't done that is awful in nature um, it's frightening so um, you know thank you for 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 your work and and, and research and sharing it with, with with me today and obviously listeners um, and uh, yeah ho hopefully we can see some of those changes as well in in time and it sounds like that's occurring so that you know there's some positivity around um, you know how we do this um, Yes, it remains adversarial, uh, but there are some better elements or some more considered elements, particularly for the young, um, that we're beginning to introduce. So that's that's um, you know optimistic. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this chat. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media. 
and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.